Choosing a career in sales is a risk many people aren't willing to take. But if you can handle the risk, a sales career can be the most rewarding challenge you'll ever face. My name is Roger Burnett, and this is the place where we study together how to win at the game of sales by examining unique strategies behind successful sales efforts and seek ways to find our own success in what continues to be a fascinatingly complex marketplace. If your goal is to create a standout sales career amidst the noise and endless competition, these discussions with leaders in the field will inform, educate, entertain, and inspire you. Get ready to uncover your unfair advantage. Welcome to the So You're in Sales podcast. This episode of the So You're in Sales podcast is brought to you by Badger Maps. Do you work in field sales? then you've experienced what I've experienced, leaving the house, driving around, visiting customers, and popping into potential new accounts without having a real plan of action. It's easy to waste time driving around until I tried Badger. Badger is a route planner for field sales teams, and it can help you sell up to 25% more by optimizing your driving routes and meeting schedule. Cool, right? Badger can knock 20% off the amount of time you spend driving around each day, and that's more time to get deals closed. Badger will also automatically update your customer information in your CRM, so it'll get your sales manager off your back too. Never be late to a sales meeting again, and start your free trial of Badger Maps today by heading to badgermaps.com slash podcast. That's badgermaps.com podcast and start your free trial today. In this period that's been designated the Great Resignation or the Great Reset, there's been an increased awareness on culture when it comes to the workplace. And as we examine ways to be a standout company that would allow you to be able to attract and retain the talent that you seek, it's going to be really important for you to focus on your culture and the ways that you can communicate what working for your organization is all about to prospects. So I thought it was the perfect time to bring in Rich Sheridan, who is the founder of Menlo Innovations. Rich is somewhat of a celebrity in our local community in his ability to have brought together an organization dating all the way back to 2000. Writing custom software is a difficult task and it is very labor intensive and requires people to be working together in tandem in order to be able to bring what it is that the company is trying to deliver to fruition. And Rich and his team had a very significant challenge on their hands during the pandemic as they had to bring all of that work into a work from home environment. And they really relied on their culture in order to be able to survive and thrive during the pandemic. I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Give it a listen. This is often the case for me when you've been doing a show for five years, you know, in my mind i've had you on we've had these long amazing conversations about culture and why it's important and what businesses are trying to do and yet here i am still so fortunate that no in reality this is the first time that in the many many years that i've been doing this now into the 125th or sixth episode that this will represent of the show so Thank you for not being any less famous in the time that I've been doing this so that I could catch up to you. Or perhaps more infamous, right? That's the <laughs> danger you run. Is, you know. <laughs> well, 
And I've been known to ask authors if you perceive books to be like tattoos, because, you know, once you do one. Yeah. Well, you know how that rolls, right? Two now, two under my belt. So uh, and I know there's at least one more in me and probably not even just business books. Exactly. Exactly. So for the uninitiated, let's cover without having to go into the deep dive that is the canon that fed what it is that you ultimately wrote about. But let's cover sort of the the prevailing organizational topic that is what prefaces what it is that you like to talk to people about. Let, let's let's start there. Yeah, you know, as you know well, Roger, um, we speak a lot about joy here at Menlo, which is an unusual word in life at times, uh, even though there should be more of it for us. Uh, and certainly a rare word in the context of our work lives. And for us, uh, we have centered our entire culture here at Menlo Motivations on that word, joy. And that becomes this guiding light principle for everything we do. And ultimately for us, joy is externally focused. It is about the people we intend to serve. We want to delight the people we intend to serve. And when we do, that is joy for us. And given what we do for a living is design and develop software, the delight for us is when the people who ultimately use the work that we've done are delighted. The end users of the software, and intriguingly, they are not people who pay us for what we do. We are a custom software design shop, so we are building it on behalf of businesses. But we hear the people who use the software inside of those businesses or use the products those businesses sell to the market that we help design and build. And we hear that they love what we created. That is where our joy comes from. And everything we do here, laser beam focused on producing that result in the world. And we do, as you know, some unusual things here, which I'm sure we'll talk about. (laughs) Well, for me, reflecting on what you're describing in the context of our own business, what I can relate that to being like for me has been like the first time a artist hears his or her song on the radio. Mm. Like just, oh my God. And there, it's there for people to appreciate. And whether you do or you don't is kind of beside the point because I got a chance to give you that opportunity. And isn't that really at the end of the day, what, at least for me, I mean, yes, I want to be compensated And yes, I do ultimately like the idea of feeling like I'm part of something bigger than myself. Right. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when the sum total of the work is effective, that's when the magic really happens now, right? So, yeah. In fact, you know, if you think about the word compensation, we need compensation to compensate for something we're missing. If we give up a part of our lives to do work, we want to be compensated for that because our lives are out of balance. They're skewed towards work versus maybe something else we want to do in our lives. I'm not saying that we don't compensate our team, compensate them well, but the fact matter is there is there is compensation in delivering great things to the world. If there was a way to sort of take the essence of what we're describing and bottle it really that's the bottle you seek right (laughs) so 
from a creating an organization like the the fun part that i enjoy about your story is it's not unlike a lot of other people's stories where at some stage in the game the people that you're doing the thing for forsake you and you're faced with this moment of okay what does that mean for me right it's it's every hero's journey that we've ever ever watched unfold on screen when you were in that moment how did you arrive at the fact that joy had to be at the essence of how you wanted to imagine it? What, and, and like, even if you believed in it in that, that moment or you evolved to it, like talk about that piece of the journey and why that may have been important for you at that stage. You know, I had chosen this profession when I was very young, this idea of designing and developing software. I thought it would be cool. I thought it would be fun. I thought it would engage my musician in a way that my inner musician couldn't exactly be expressed. It, writing software is an art form. It is a form of music, right? And so by my, by my mid-30s, the music I was creating was sounded awful. It was no, it was, there was no joy in it. I was spending a lot of time doing it. I would come home after very long days, often getting absolutely nothing done. And I remember my wife one night looking at tired me as I'd come home, missed another family dinner. And she said, Rich, you look really tired. Did you get a lot done today? I'm like, no, I got nothing done today. And she looked at me and she says, you don't look happy. And I said, I'm not. She said, what are you going to do about it? I said, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, looking at her, looking at our three daughters, our house, <laughs> the two cars in the garage, all of the responsibilities of life were weighing down on me. And I was faced with this kind of scary moment where I realized I cannot do this another 30 years and survive. It's just not physically possible. And so at that point, I thought, I don't know what else I can do. I mean, this is what I went to school for. This is what I've been doing the last 20 years and some faster or another. And I was scared. I thought, how am I going to provide if I can't do the thing that I'm trained up to do that I thought I was going to be passionate about? And, you know, my inner optimist kicked in around about that time. And I thought there's got to be a pony in this pile of manure somewhere. Figure it out. Start reading books. Start digging your way out of this mess and getting to a better place. And I didn't put the word joy on it then. I just wanted better results. I just wanted to feel pride in the work that I did. I wanted to feel like I went to work and got meaningful things actually done. And I was convinced that there had to be a better way of doing things and was customary. And the trouble was, it wasn't even like quit this job and go somewhere else because every other job I looked at, every other peer I had was like, oh no, Rich, your story's the same everywhere. You're not living some specially bad life over here. <laughs> we hate it too. <laughs> you know, we hate it. This, you know, I mean, it's the classic thing. It's why we call it work, Rich. You know, that's why you get a paycheck. You know, suck it up, get your joy elsewhere in life. And I'm like, no, I want it in my work life. This is where I'm spending most of my waking hours. And, you know, and I'll be honest, when I've coached people on this over the years, I tell them something I think that's really important you want to be able to have a conversation around the dinner table with your family, especially your children, and let them see in you 
that work can be fulfilling, that work can be meaningful, that work can be purposeful. And if all you're doing every night is coming home and sharing the misery of work, what do you think your kids are actually going to conclude about work life? Where are they going to go? I mean, they're, they're watching you. They're watching you as an example. You want to be that inspirational example to your kids around the dinner table. And it's really hard to do if you hate your job. Oh, and to think that you are daily imprinting the message to the people that are the closest to you, especially when you may wander off and put on your work suit and go down and try to be the inspiration to everyone else that you're giving so much of yourself away that when you get home, you have nothing left to give. And that too, in and of itself, is not the appropriate thing to be teaching. It's that when we're all part of something bigger than ourselves, it has a way to be filling for everyone Yep. in a way that can allow for results that are the ones that we're really seeking to flourish. So uh, I have this vision of Rich and Jerry Maguire vision statement over typewriter down the Kinko's, you know, whether it's that or I'm going to go do this thing and this is the way I want it to be done. Talk about the evolution as the organization started to grow with this as its foundational philosophy. Well, how how did that, what challenges did that present? Yeah. So I was part of this tired old public company at the time. And, you know, in in our struggles were the same as everybody else's struggles. You know, we were were a technical company trying to deliver technical products to a world that was demanding them, right? This was the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, software was a big thing then, you know, just as big as it is now. And we were delivering crap. And we were delivering it late and we were delivering, we were frustrating users. And, I, and I'm looking at this and I'm starting to read books, but not on technology. I was reading books on teamwork and organizational design and that sort of thing. And ultimately, after a couple of years as VP of R&D at that public company, I made a big decision, a really big one. And it was kind of a click moment. I'd read a book and it just spoke to me. And then I saw a video and that video crystallized an image for me about what was possible. And I think all of the pain that preceded, all of the reading that preceded, all of the thinking that preceded crystallized in this one moment. And I started running towards change. And within six months, I transformed that tired old public company into something that looks a lot like Menlo does today. And I remember one of my programmers back at the time, and again, this was back when I was in the public company, and he looked at me, he goes, I don't get it. I said, what? And he says, you put everything on the line for this massive cultural shift. And he said, at the beginning, there is no way you could have been confident that it would have worked. He said, where did you find the courage to do that? And I looked at him, I said, David, it was easy. And he said, what? What do you mean it was easy? He says, you put your job, your title, your authority, your paycheck, your staff, you put everything on the line. I said, David, you're looking at the worldly stuff. What was on the line was here. I said, I can't do this another 20 years. So I wasn't running towards risk. I was running towards safety. (laughs) What I was leaving behind me. 
I'm not sure he ever actually got that, but that was a crystallizing moment for me because once you realize when you cross that bridge that you're running towards safety, guess what? You start running faster and faster and faster. And then in 2001, everything I had created, I'd gotten back to the joy in two years. It was all taken away and I was out of work. And you know, I think the joke I love to tell, my wife still kind of laughs at it because she, <laughs> she had tears in her eyes when I told her that I'd lost my job. And she said, she, she looked at me, she said, you're unemployed. I said, no, honey, I'm an entrepreneur now. <laughs> and um, but that was the moment that I knew all of that pain, all of that reading, the two years of experience at that public company, they couldn't take away what I had learned in those two years. They could take away the paycheck, the stock options, the title, the office, the team, the building was gone, the parking spot didn't work anymore. All of that stuff gone, except what I had learned. And that became the basis for what we created when we started Menlo Innovations. And when a lot of people come here and they see what we've done at Menlo, they're like, how did you think of this? Like, oh, well, number one, let me tell you the 15 years of pain. Right. Number let me tell you the two-year return to joy where we got to experiment like crazy to create this. And we started them with all these things in place in 2001. So, Rich, in my research for uh, Red Goldfish Promo Edition, I had to do the due diligence and do the research to come up with the citations to be able to have what we could claim as a research focus book. And I ended up with over 300 examples of businesses using a purpose-led approach. And what the research proved to us were three distinct things. Just wondering if you've experienced any of these in your time since you started the company back prior to the Great Recession and now prior to the Great Resignation, which we're going to get into a little bit. But three things, record sales, loyal employees, and raving fans of customers who can't wait to refer them to other worthy clients simply by adopting a strategy that says we're here to do something more than make the thing that we sell. How do you weigh in on this comment, my friend, knowing from personal experience, you've gone through the arc of advances in our economy, declines in our economy, pandemics, global supply chain meltdowns. How do you come out on this topic? Well, I, I will say if, if you told me in 2001 that, oh, by the way, coming up to a theater near you, 9-11, two wars, 2008, 2016, pandemic, Ukraine war, you know, I don't know if I'd have the stomach for what we went through over the past 20 years right. uh, that we've been in business. You know, we're on track now, this coming year, right now, we're on track to have our best year ever in 2022. We had it in 2019. We didn't have it in 2020, I can assure you. We climbed a steep mountain in 2021, and it looks like 2022 has a darn good chance of record sales. Um, loyal employees. Uh, we have lost four of our employees uh, since the pandemic started. Uh, that is a very different story than many of my peers. Now, one of them had moved to Seattle already, and decided he was going to find a local job there. But he worked for us for about six months after he moved there. Um, one decided he just wanted to stay at home with his home 
uh, you know, the kids he grew up with in New York State, and he found a remote first job so he could work in New York State. Uh, but we have not, I mean, and I don't want to be too bold or unhumble about this, we have not lost people to the grand resignation. Um, and then, uh, you know, a lot of what we do is word of mouth based on just delivering great software to the world. But inside of all of this, and interestingly, one of our customers, I literally just left a lunchtime meeting with them, drove in here, drove here from Colorado. His parents live in, in Ann Arbor and, um, and he just wanted to come see it. He's never been here. He's read the books. He's been a customer of ours. He's never seen it. And, um, and he's like, you guys are remarkable. And I said, yeah, I said, we want you to be our customer forever. I said, but more than that, we want you to succeed. Right. And it's just, it was just a delightful lunchtime conversation with him. Brought several of the team members that have worked on this project uh, along uh, for the lunch lunchtime conversation. And it was just absolutely delightful. And he is a, a raving fan of Menlo. He sings our praises wherever he goes. And the investments that are necessary to engender that kind of response is really for me when we're trying to impress upon peers, business owners, people we mentor, even consulting clients, the, the notion that the investments are incremental and continuous are the hardest disciplines to teach. Right. Because they require your willingness to do things like, I don't know, schedule it into your actual calendar. Yep. Yeah, I, so, I, had, a, I had a fun discussion this morning over coffee with uh, a company that we've been courting in one way or another for about 19 years, and we still haven't closed the deal with them. And I told the team, I said, I got to the next big step in this 19-year sales process. <laughs> no, right? but, but, but we have helped them tremendously along the way because our view is every touch point with our company should deliver value to our to the people who who come in contact with us yeah yeah well and you do such a magnificent job in some of the discussion points around you know removing things that have a way of inhibiting performance the the drag points in a business like too many meetings and all of that great stuff just so good to give people the chance to be free to do the great kind of work that really would uh, bring the delight and joy that your clients are looking for. But I guess I, I really, Rich, there's maybe two questions left that I want to ask that are kind of culture related. There are people listening to this that either themselves are trying to decide what to do with their lives or have people in their orbits who are faced with similar challenges. And, you know, we're hoping that by virtue of these discussions, we're doing things that could provide small segments of value to people who are weighing those kinds of decisions. So everyone had to go home. You're the way you run your business is very people intensive, having people together. It has a, has a way of having a negative effect on productivity. When you take that dynamic and you have to explode it into people's homes, how was the group able to weather that storm when it came to Menlo? How were you able to make that work? I, I will tell you, they weathered it better and faster than I did personally, uh, which was a delight to watch. 
because they led, they kind of led me out of the pandemic mindset. Um, you know, I would say the strong foundation we built uh, of teamwork, collaboration, trust, human energy, empathy, compassion for each other. Um, all of that was built in right from the start. That's been uh, just a foundational component of Menlo. And for me, as I looked back at what we've been through the last two years, it's almost as if we spent the first 18 years preparing for this moment, building the culture that would allow us to weather this storm. And it was a storm. It was a storm of the century for us. I mean, it wasn't just take this intensely in-person collaborative environment, people working two to a computer, switching the pairs every five days, you know, everything done in pairs here in a close collaborative work environment like this, and then send them all home and figure out how you're going to replicate that electronically. That would have been neat if it was just the only thing we had to deal with. And then there was the economic effects of the pandemic. How are we going to survive a 60% sag in sales when our biggest customers were panicking and hoarding cash and they weren't going to spend any of it with us because that was easier for them to just hang on and weather the storm themselves. So we had to do those two whammies all both at the same time. And, uh, you know, the, the team figures it out. They, you know, my best moment in this, which is just indicative of how this team thinks, we have this component, Roger, of, of Menlo that we call high-tech anthropology, which is all about going out into the world and studying the people who one day will use the software we're going to design and build, right? And understanding the people we intend to serve. That's how you get to joy is truly understanding the people you intend to serve. So that's what our anthropologists do. They go out in the world, study people in their native environment. Well, guess what? Every one of our projects starts with high-tech anthropology. And the anthropologists can't get on airplanes <laughs> go study anyways because they're at home. And so how are we going to do this fundamental component that sets us apart from all of our competitors? Right. And in that moment, one of our senior high-tech anthropologists, Molly, she's been with us for years, leans in and she says, this will be so exciting to figure out how to do this remotely. <laughs> all I'm saying is, thank you, Molly. <laughs> I did I need to hear that, right? Instead of everybody going, oh, woe is me. Oh, we're screwed. We can't do this. There's no way this will work. Their spirit and attitude was, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out together. We'll figure it out as a team. That was present everywhere. Probably one of the most fundamental statements we make inside a memo all the time is, Let's run the experiment. Let's try stuff yeah. and see if it works. Take action versus take a meeting. That's the spirit of Menlo. And that spirit carried us through. And we are literally emerging from this pandemic stronger than when we went in. That's Not awesome. just stronger like financially. That's, that's important, of course, because that's the lifeblood of any company is what's your bank balance. But stronger culturally, stronger in terms of what we deliver, how we deliver it, how we work, how we work with our clients, all of those things we are better at today than we were when we entered the pandemic. And that's a great place to be. The analogies that I've heard drawn about what's going on in this phase of our marketplace is purpose-based businesses were galvanized in this process and non-purpose-based businesses were splintered. And it's amazing how that serves as the glue. Mm -hmm. it, 
it really serves as the glue. And when the like the joke we were saying is when the mission is just words on a wall, you end up with the great resignation. When the mission is the way you live your business every single day, you have your organization rallying around what's going on because of the fact that that is our mission is to do that, right? And here's, a, here's an example of that uh, because there is the grand resignation and then there's the other side of the grand resignation. We've added 22 software developers to Menlo in the last year. Most of my peers are like, we can't find one to save our lives. Right. We've hired 22. So clearly the mission, the purpose, the culture we've created is an attractive force. Yeah. No, I, that's that's so good. And that in and of itself, right? In the time when no one else can fill a chair, we don't have a problem because people are excited for the possibility of coming to a place where not only are they doing great work, but they're working towards something that's bigger than themselves. And that's every survey we've watched, every respondent that we've seen repeatedly and consistently says, when given the choice to choose between a place that gives me that option and a place that does not, I'm choosing the one that does, right? And so that's the best part. All right, so you have this... Um, and human suffering as it relates to technology is like, if we're going to leave this on a little bit of a, like, uh, it's fun to say because it's true and yet it's got a marketing angle to it. But here's the thing at the end of the day, things like this and making great software to a certain extent, like at its finest, it's top of Maslow's hierarchy kind of stuff. It's self-actualization at its finest. But what I know about Menlo is that Menlo is not so ivory tower as to be, we only live in self-actualization space. We're real people. So how did the pandemic and people's just needs, the, the needs that they were articulating as employees of your organization, how did that change during the pandemic and how were you able to react and how did Menlo help with the community aspect of all of that. Like, cause I know there's a story here. As you know, we also support Cornerstone schools in Detroit in a variety of different ways. And we've been trying to continue that even throughout the pandemic, which has been hard on schools in general. Uh, I know a couple of our team members were invited to speak down in there about their own professions to hope encourage those kids down in Detroit uh, about you know their own career dreams, that sort of thing. Um, and then the, the one place where it, it turns inward into the household and into the family uh, that I've seen with our team. Uh, one of our famous stories of Menlo, famous experiments, is inviting newborns, parents of newborns, to bring their children to work with them all day, every day for several months. And we have had 27 Menlo babies in the last 14 years, not a daycare, babies actually with the parent for several months here at work from about three months old, maybe to like six or seven months old. Okay. And what I've watched over the course of the pandemic is because everybody's at home, the parents are with their children all the time now, not with the rest of the team, of course, but the degree to which the team embraces seeing those kids show up on mom or dad's lap. Uh, I know Abby, Menlo baby number five from a long time ago, 
uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, she celebrated her 10th birthday, which should be a big deal for any kid, yeah. but hers occurred at the beginning of the pandemic. So she couldn't have any friends over or anything like that. So our team helped her celebrate her 10th birthday. And she is very proud. She'll often go around, I'm Mellow Baby number five. You know, <laughs> this is a big deal. And she has the plastic Viking helmet with all the stickers on it she did when, uh, when she would come into the office from time to time. And so I appreciate watching the team focus inwardly on their own families, making sure they're strengthening those relationships as well. All of those things are very satisfying to see because we get to see inside the lives of our people differently than we ever did before. Having those people feel confident and comfortable that there's going to be no judgment is removing yet another impediment that could stand in the way of that person doing the really important work that Menlo needs he or she to be doing that day. So, yeah, I, I would say it goes to the needle of no judgment. It goes to the needle of encouragement because yeah. if we hear one of those kids in the background, we're like, "Hey, Nick, where's Philip? Is Philip around? Get him up on your lap, you know." And, and we we're actually looking for the kids, not just saying tolerating them. You know, that's there you go. Well, it's it's obvious to me as anyone having the opportunity to surreptitiously participate and watch from sort of out just outside the door what goes on over there so it's just a fascinating experiment to continue to watch and we wish you even more continued success as you continue to to do what you're doing there so concludes the audio portion of the so you're in sales podcast stick around next wednesday when we release the video based version where rich asks me a question about some of the organizations that he should be following and I spend a little bit of time giving him a little love and knowledge about closed loop recycling should be interesting conversation for you to pay attention to next Wednesday should you be so inclined if this conversation resonated with you or if you know other business owners who are struggling to fill chairs and have open positions maybe share this conversation with them and give them the opportunity to glean some of the insights that Rich was able to share with us around the incredible value of culture and why it's so important, especially now considering the ways that changes in the marketplace are affecting the decision-making process for potential employees and what it is that they wanna do and for whom they want to do it. If you've not yet done so, please subscribe to the show. It's because of our subscribers and our listen data that we're able to bring high quality guests onto the program like Rich. Look forward to our next episode in two weeks time. Until then, this is Roger signing off.